Welcome to a special episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode is titled, History's Biggest Heavyweight Matchup, Hannibal versus Scipio Africanus. And it details the rise to power and final battle of the Titans, Hannibal and Scipio Africanus. Hannibal led the powerful African Empire of Carthage, the center of which resides in present-day Tunisia on the North African coast. Scipio Africanus, as he came to be called following this great battle, represented Rome, and this battle, known as the Battle of Zama, the second battle of the Tunic Wars, is known by many historians as one of the greatest heavyweight matchups in history. Our guest host today is Dante Stack, and this special episode will keep you on the edge of your chair. Remember to share 1001 Heroes with your friends. We're listened to in more than 200 countries on iPad and Stitcher and by many folks worldwide who don't podcast but listen to us at our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com or at Facebook at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Facebook is a great place to enjoy getting into conversations about our episodes and to find out what's coming next. Before the days of Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling, before the Rumble in the Jungle with Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, before even Rocky Balboa versus Apollo Creed, there was perhaps the single greatest heavyweight match in Western history. In 202 BCE, Hannibal Barca, a member of the Lion's Brood, represented the empire of Carthage, took to face off in one final decisive battle against Scipio Africanus, the number one general of the rising empire of Rome. My name is Dante Stack and I will be your storyteller today. If you were to make a list of the 10 best war tacticians, war generals, at least of the western world, on that list you would undoubtedly have Hannibal Barca and Scipio Africanus. They might even crack your top five. Hannibal might even be number one. He did things so incredible in his day. He did the unimaginable, the unbelievable. He, of course, is the guy who took an entire army and marched them over the Alps. And not only that, he was attacked by various tribal Celts and suffered starvation and harsh weather and marched elephants over the Alps. I used to live in Europe. I've seen the Alps. They are ginormous. This guy did it with 45,000 troops and pack animals and a bundle of war elephants. Not only did he do it, he got to the other side and then he wins battle after battle against perhaps the best armies on earth at that point in time. But before we get into all that, there was a night, I presume early in the evening. This is in North Africa outside of the town of Zama, just a few miles away from Carthage, the capital city of the Carthaginian Empire. And Hannibal had his army there and Scipio had his Roman army there. And these two heavyweights met and discussed terms. This is an amazing moment of time. This is the ancient world's version of, say, Winston Churchill meeting up with Adolf Hitler one-on-one before the Battle of Berlin. This is something on that scale. These two heavyweights met up and talked to one another to see if they could come to terms before one final grisly battle. And this was in an era before Rome was the conquerors of the world, before Rome was the big kid on the block. They had to go and pummel. Carthage. They had to take Carthage out. And it's really the ending of the Punic Wars, the destruction of Carthage, that catapults Rome from being a local strong arm, a local power, to being the center of the world. But Hannibal Barca stood in their way. 
And yes, of course, this isn't a literal boxing match where Hannibal Barca took a left hook to Scipio Africanus's jaw. But these two men used their whole lives to figure out how to use men and whatever else they could use to kill other men. Hannibal had such a mind for exploiting the other team's weaknesses, for figuring out how to arrange his troops on the battlefield exactly the best way to terrorize and to immobilize and destroy the enemy. And now, in this late evening, he's an older man, but there's a rising power coming up. Scipio Africanus is the new kid on the block, the new young general with energy and verve and an unsinkable spirit and will to win. This is a match of the old dog versus the new dog. So first, let's take a look at our older contestant. On this side of the ring, Hannibal Barca, son of Hamilcar Barca. Hamilcar Barca himself might make the list of top 10 greatest war tacticians. He was Carthage's bright star in the first Punic War. There's a whole lot of information and a lot of facts and details that go into how the Punic War started, but for our purposes today, all you really need to know is that there was essentially a territorial dispute between Rome in Italy and Carthage, which would be approximately modern-day Tunisia, which is to say kind of northeasterly tip of Africa. If you look on a map, you see the bootleg of Italy, then the island of Sicily, kind of southwest of Italy, and then the closest part of Africa to Sicily would be where Carthage was. So from the Roman perspective, Carthage was the closest African civilization to them. And more than that, Carthage was a blooming economy, a powerhouse when it came to uh, mercantilism and trade and commerce. These guys, they had port towns and they had the best naval fleet in the world at this time. The first Punic War actually starts and Rome doesn't have any ships at all. What they do, and what allows them to eventually, 23 years in, become the victor of the First Punic War against Hannibal's father, Hamilcar Barca, is, is Rome gets their hands on a Carthaginian ship, and they essentially duplicate it and make a whole fleet of these things, and then use them in sieges, and, and they fight Carthage the way Carthage likes to fight. That's the undaunting spirit of Rome, even way back then. But the important part is that Hamilcar Barca, he fathers three sons, all of which end up being strong Carthaginian generals in the Second Punic War. And Hamilcar instills in his three sons a fiery hatred for the people of Rome. And you, you can just imagine that day after day, as these three young boys are following their father... The father is just, just spouting propaganda day after day, making sure that his sons know how evil this Roman snake, this Roman viper is. And it should be noted that we don't have primary sources from Carthage. So all of our information about Hannibal and about Hamilcar Barca comes from Roman historians, primarily Livy and Polybius, which wrote 100, 150 years after the fact of the Punic Wars. So we, we have a biased account. But archaeologically, we found mass graves of children from Carthage. And the assumption is, the belief is, that Carthaginians were a Phoenician people. The Phoenicians worshipped this god, Moloch. And Moloch required the sacrificing of young blood. It's believed often that the firstborn son would be given over to Moloch just at a prepubescent age. And usually this went by being dropped into a pit of burning ashes. But it's said that when Hannibal was nine years old, Hamilcar took his son to one of these sacrificial places. And he took Hannibal up, but instead of dropping him into the pit, he says something to the extent of, 
I'm giving you over to fight Rome with all your strength for all your life. This is what I'm sacrificing you to. To pledge war forever against the Roman people. And Hannibal, being nine years old, supposedly takes this oath. And then some years later, Hamilcar Barca dies at sea, drowns at sea. And so then it comes time for the three sons of Hamilcar, the lion's brood, to take up their father's mantle and fight the Romans. And Hannibal, at 25 years old, is said to have the same fiery eyes that his father did. That apparently his, his two brothers didn't quite have the same intensity that Hannibal had. And then he has this crazy idea. Maybe he got it from his father, we're not sure. But the First Punic War ends, and the terms are really harsh on Carthage. And after a while, some things stir up, and it becomes quite evident there's going to be a Second Punic War. And so Hannibal decides, we got to take the battle to Rome itself. But we don't want to just take our ships over to Italy. I'm going to march our troops over the Alps. So that's what he does. And then he gets to the other side, and he starts recruiting these Celtic tribes to join forces with his meager army now, because a lot of people died on the trek through the Alps. And then over the next couple years, Hannibal obliterates Roman armies, just destroys them. Uh, I'll mention one quickly. The most sensational, I think, battle is called the Battle of Cannae. And Hannibal had it worked out so that the two armies would meet at a kind of a skinny plains area. And he sets up his troops in a convex form. And then he's got his cavalry at the sides. And he's putting all of his faith in his cavalry. Hannibal has more cavalry than the Romans. But the Romans have way, way more troops than the Carthaginians at this point. Anyway, the Roman general, because the plains are so skinny, he has his men in, lined up so that they can be a battering ram through this convex form that Hannibal's established. And so the battle begins, Hannibal's cavalry on the sides shoot forward, actually chase down and, and cause the Roman cavalry to retreat. And then this battering ram comes forward and pushes back this convex form that Hannibal's formed, and the convex goes inside out so that it forms a semicircle. And what happens is, once Hannibal's cavalry got rid of the Roman cavalry, then they come back, and they've now encircled the Roman army. And from that point on, it's just a slaughterhouse. And the Romans were so smashed in that they were just waiting for hours as this slow-moving battle ram of doom got clobbered one by one. They just had them surrounded. There was no way to escape. There was no way to even fight because they were pigeonholed in. There were rumors that at the battlefield, some Romans actually tried to dig into the ground and smother their head in the sand so that they would suffocate and die that way rather than at the terror that was to come at the hands of the Carthaginians. So Hannibal wins this battle, and many thought that... He ha actually had a chance at that point just to raid Rome. He just he took out roughly 90,000 Roman soldiers in that day. One day! That's unheard of, unthinkable, unfathomable. Just think of the rivers of blood, how high that stream was. But he doesn't march on Rome. The Romans very astutely start using kind of delay tactics and skirmish tactics because they don't actually want to fight Hannibal straight on on the battlefield anymore because every time they do Hannibal just obliterates them so they're learning we gotta just run away and push them back and never fight them straight on again and this goes on and on and years go by 17 years actually and then a new general comes up in Rome and instead of fighting Hannibal in Italy he decides to take the battle to North Africa Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! 
It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This Roman general thinks to himself, if Hannibal took the battle to Italian soil, I'll take the battle to Carthaginian soil. And of course I'm talking about the other guy in the ring. Scipio, later to be called Scipio Africanus. Scipio, much like Hannibal, was the son of a Roman leader, a Roman general. And his father died in battle against the Carthaginians. And it's believed that Scipio, as a young kind of understudy, uh, was actually at the Battle of Cannae. He was one of the guys on the cavalry that retreated early on in the battle. But he learned from all this devastation. He watched Hannibal and how Hannibal destroyed Rome's armies. And when it's his turn to become general, he starts doing things a little differently. The first thing Scipio did is he went to Spain, where Carthage had some other lands, and he just demolishes a whole bunch of people over in Spain. And then he gets the troops, and he convinces Rome to let him go to North Africa. And what's interesting to note here is this is 16 years after Hannibal crossed the Alps, which... It's a really long time to be in battle. It's a really long time to be fighting a war against one enemy. It's a lifetime. Scipio surely only ever knew life against Carthage. His whole life was Rome's mortal enemy is Carthage. It's maybe like the baby boomers who grew up to learn Soviet Union is our enemy. They're the only real contemporary nemesis of the U.S. in the 50s and 60s and 70s. When you're raised, when you're instilled with this from birth, it feels like it's... It's a forever thing. <laughs> there was only ever battle between Carthage and Rome. And this must have been in, in Scipio's mantra, in his mind. Anyway, interestingly enough, when he's trying to get an army assembled, he goes to Sicily to get some troops. And apparently, if you performed poorly on the battlefield or you were a soldier on the losing side of various battles, often you were sent to Sicily and that was kind of like your punishment location, I guess. And that's the first place Scipio goes to get his troops his new army. He wants the bloodthirsty old veterans. He wants the curmudgeony, hate-filled, vengeful losers. These are the guys who somehow survived the battles of Cannae and other horrible losses to Hannibal and the Carthaginians. He gets those guys, the ones that Romans said, you're not even worthy to fight for us anymore. He gets them and he takes them to North Africa. He starts winning battles. In the ancient world, you didn't fight at night. That was just something you didn't do because it was always chaos. And even if you won... There would be so much chaos on the battlefield and so much confusion that you would lose as many people as you would potentially kill. It was never worth it. But Scipio, in North Africa, one of his early battles there, he decides, you know what? Against these Carthaginians, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into their camp while they're drunk at night. We're going to set fire to their camp. And we're going to set up our archers just outside of their camp. So when they're running away from their camp in flames, we'll just gun them down. And he does this, and it goes flawlessly. It's said that he probably kills 40,000 that night. No one did night battles back then. And Scipio pulled it off. And not only did he pull it off, he did it without even getting a scratch on him. Yes, he was the up-and-coming guy. He was the guy that was finally taking this 17-year-long Second Punic War off of Italian soil and taking it to Carthage. And he was winning, and Carthage was on the cusp of completely losing for a second time. Remember, it's it's got to be rough to be Carthage at this point. You lost the first Punic War. 
and here you are again, about to lose the Second Punic War. But there's one man stopping him, and that's Hannibal. Carthage sends a note to Hannibal, who's still in Italy, and says, Get the heck back here, man. We need you to fight for Carthage back in Carthage's homeland. And it must have been a strange thought. Hannibal's about 45 at this point in time. But he spent the last 17 years in Italy. Most of his adult life now has been wandering the fields of Italy. He knows Italy way better than he knows Carthage. So it's interesting to note that this battle that's about to take place, the Battle of Zama, technically, I guess, Hannibal has home turf. But it probably didn't feel that way. He fought his whole military campaign in Italy. And likewise for Scipio, Scipio was much more accustomed to fighting not in Italy. He had fought in Spain and now in North Africa. So it's almost weirdly flip-flopped that the home field turf goes to the visiting team. But here we are. This is going to be an all-out brawl. There's no more skirmishes. Hannibal wants to see this thing through. He wants to end this war. And Scipio wants the same thing. He's doing it for early glory. If he can win this... As young as he is, he's going to be a god when he gets back to Rome. Think of the triumphs they're going to throw for Scipio Africanus. But Scipio's got some problems. He's outnumbered for one. It seems that Hannibal has about 40,000 troops. Scipio has probably about 30. But in the flip of the equation, Hannibal's the one that has less cavalry. Hannibal probably has about 4,000 men on horses... Whereas Scipio has 6,000. But then again, Hannibal's got 80 war elephants. I can't imagine what it would be like to see an elephant and know I gotta fight him. I gotta fight that elephant and not to have a gun or pistol or anything to shoot at that elephant. That's like fighting those walking machines at the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back. It's just super (laughs) terrifying. Like, that thing is way bigger than me. Not to mention, this is the ancient world. They didn't have National Geographic. The young troops probably had never seen anything like an elephant. Just imagine, you see this monster on the battlefield. Whoa. (laughs) Crazy. Anyway, the two armies get to the battlefield. And as we said before, the night before, the two men meet. And the men waiting for that battle on the Roman side. Here's what historian Livy says they were feeling that night. Quote, This time the fight was with Hannibal, someone born in the army headquarters of his father. One of the bravest generals in the world, brought up and educated in the profession of arms. A fighting man while still a boy, a general when barely out of his teens. And now, with enough victories to his credit for an old, old man, though only 45, had he not filled the provinces of Spain and Gaul, the land of Italy from the Alps to the Straits of Messina, with the monuments of all of his mighty deeds? Furthermore, he led an army whose length of service matched his own, an army hardened by sufferings beyond human capacity to endure, an army steeped a thousand times in the blood of Roman armies, and enriched with the spoils of generals, not just soldiers. Many of those who would come face to face with Scipio in battle had themselves slain praetors, generals, and Roman consuls with their own hands. Many had wandered at leisure through captured camps or Rome's surrendered cities. All the faces of Rome's magistrates today would not equal those which Hannibal could now display captured from Rome's dead military commanders. As they explored such terrors in their minds, people simply increased their own general level of anxiety. For many years, they had grown used to seeing war waged before their very eyes in different parts of Italy, without much hope of any near likelihood of a finish to the fighting. But now, it added to their anxieties and raised the whole level of expectation that the two generals, Scipio and Hannibal, were getting ready for their final showdown. Livy goes on to say that when the two men meet, they're silent and just stare at each other for a long while. 
both in apparent admiration of what the other had actually accomplished. To me, it brings out the type of image of like a Magneto versus Professor X, where, of course, they're on opposite sides of the battle, but they are worthy enemies, so they admire each other quite a bit. And here's that moment where they first actually get to set eyes on each other. And then Hannibal speaks. And he gives a long speech, actually, of, of how he wishes things didn't work out this way and that he wishes the gods hadn't made Carthage greedy and Rome greedy. And then he starts talking about fortune. And he says, fortune used to be my mistress. Fortune used to be on my side. Remember Canae? Remember me crossing the Alps? Remember all the things I did that no one believed could be done at all? Yes, fortune was on my side. But it is when fortune is most on your side, when you feel most filled with lady luck, that you should trust her the least. For now, I, Hannibal, live in the pit. Fortune's turned her back on me. And you, young general, young Scipio, you think you have fortune on your side. That might be true today. But tomorrow we fight. Maybe she turns her back once again. Let's have peace. Let's not do this. Don't do this. Don't do something you can't undo, Scipio. And unsurprisingly, Scipio rebuffs this and doesn't want peace and kind of says, look, it's not just fortune that's on my side. It's, it's the righteousness of the gods. The gods know that Rome is righteous. Rome is the one who deserves victory here. So they will see us through this. And, you know, again, Scipio kind of... He has the upper hand. He's a battle away from ending the Second Punic War and destroying Carthage. Whereas, even if Hannibal wins this, it's not over. It's not even over by a long shot. They're in Carthaginian lands. They're not in Italy anymore. Hannibal's not knocking on Rome's door. So it's not surprising, then, that Scipio comes forth with a robust spirit and isn't going to just settle at this point. There's too much that could be won so easily. Within 24 hours, a 17-year-old war could essentially be over. And won. Full victory. Scipio's not going to accept any peace terms. But, here's the thing. Hannibal's something of a Nostradamus when it comes to fortune. And these two men are more alike than they are different. As time would tell. The next morning, they go to battle. And if you look, you can find this easily on Wikipedia or anywhere that you see, uh tactical formations of how this battle worked out. You can tell right off the bat how similar the two generals' minds are, or perhaps how much Scipio learned from watching Hannibal's battles, because their formations on the battlefield look awfully similar. <laughs> Personally, when I think of ancient battles and hand-to-hand -hand combat, my mind goes to what I saw in the movie Braveheart, where it's just two lines of men, maybe some archers, and they run at each other. But when you look at the Carthaginian army, you see how multinational it was and how complex. Brian Todd Carey, in his book Hannibal's Last Battle, he mentions that the Carthaginians had in their army 12,000 Ligurian and Celtic infantry, ordered both in heavy and light suits of armor, Balearic slingers, so those are, you know, guys like David and Goliath style, I guess, that are slinging stones at the opposition, and then Moorish archers. Behind that, you have 12,000 heavy infantry from the Carthaginian levies, then 4,000 Macedonian troops, and then, of course, veteran Carthaginian infantry, and then war elephants. As these two armies are staring down at one another from across the field at dawn, 
I can relate to this just from, like, playing dodgeball in college when you have a big line of people and you're staring at another big line of your adversary and you start yelling and screaming at them and it brings up this furor in you and it just prepares you to become the weapon that you're about to be. If I can feel that on the dodgeball court, I can only imagine what that is, you know, in real life, in a real battlefield. But when the Romans start yelling at the Carthaginian army, and likewise Carthaginian army back at the Romans, I think maybe there we find our first clue of who's going to be victor here. The Romans shout with one voice and with one slogan. I'm a San Diego Padres baseball fan, and no matter what the situation, the best time to go to a Padres game is when they're facing the Los Angeles Dodgers, because the crowd is never louder than when they're uniformly shouting, Beat L.A. Beat L.A. Beat L.A. And you can imagine the Roman army has that same uniformity in their shouts, all in Latin, all the same, you know, group of people. But then when the Carthaginians respond, they're a multi-ethnic, multinational group of people. Some of these guys are just being paid to be there. A bunch of them, like the 4,000 Macedonian troops, they're just there because they hate Rome. They don't actually feel much allegiance to Hannibal or Carthage at all. It's just the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of situation. So anyway, Hannibal's army shouts, but it's just this miasma of different languages and tongues and speeches. I'm sure it was frightening, but on the other hand, it's about to put on display how this multinational group is not going to be able to have the type of discipline and uniformity that the Roman army will always have. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the battle starts, and besides a few skirmishes, Hannibal's got one thing in mind. He's thinking to himself, I have never had 90 war elephants. Yes, I've had war elephants before. Dozens, but I've never had 90. That is a crazy number. I'm starting with my war elephants. And I think his thought process was quite simple and makes sense of, I'm going to batter through the lines and try to break up their uniform strength, break up their lines, and once they're separated, then I can have a better chance going toe-to-toe. So that's what he does. Calls out the war elephants, war elephants charge forward. And besides the sheer terror factor of facing a war elephant, one of the purposes of these war elephants would be to knock down lanes. They just run through lines of the Roman army and create these big lanes that then the Carthaginians can swoop into and expose. But Scipio did two things here, and and these two things might have won the battle right then and there. First, he blasts trumpets as loud as possible directly at the war elephants. And Polybius writes that that terrifies the war elephants. A big section of them kind of make a hard left-hand turn and go right back into the left flank of Hannibal's army and intermingle and mess up the the cavalry. Those war elephants then that actually aren't scared off, Scipio's ordered his men to create these running lanes. So like I just said, one of the purposes of the elephants is just to create a stampede and go straight through the lines. But Scipio's already thought about this, and he has his men divide up, create these running lanes, so the elephants 
go straight through these lanes and aren't necessarily running over anyone. And then they're easily brought down. Well, I probably shouldn't say easily, but they are brought down with just a sea of javelins. So this does not go Hannibal's way right off the bat. And then as this chaos is going on, Scipio orders his cavalry to go off, and while there's chaos in Hannibal's cavalry, try to march them down and take them out. And from what I understand, a lot of times in these battles, since horses are obviously faster than men, when it's cavalry on cavalry, oftentimes they'll kind of run off and be a considerable distance away from the infantry. And that's exactly what happens here. Except in this case, Scipio's got more cavalry, so he's kind of routing Hannibal's cavalry in this instance. And they're retreating away, trying to reform their lines, trying to get back in formation after the elephants just took a U-turn and plowed into them. But that takes them off the main battlefield. So here we go, we're only a few minutes into the battle, and now we've taken out the war elephants, and essentially both sides of the cavalry, at least momentarily, are out of the equation. So it's now just infantry on infantry. This is where the Roman discipline works to great effect. As they go through, line by line, there's no distinction. It is one of those types of forces where one man bleeds into the next, and you can't tell one soldier from the next because they're working as a solid unit. Hannibal, since he had this multi-ethnic you know, conglomerate of many nations, his process was just, I'm going to put my men in order from least to best. best. My best men being at the back of the line. My best men also, by the way, are probably the guys who were with Hannibal when he came over the Alps. Grizzled old veterans. And there's obvious logic to doing this. When you have mercenaries and when you have these people that you've never seen in battle, you've got to be worried that when the scary Roman army moves in formation towards you, they're actually just going to hightail it and retreat. And retreating, running, fear... That's the worst thing in the world, because that's when all the casualties actually happen, is when your army's running away, all of a sudden you're getting a whole bunch more javelins in the back, the casualty numbers skyrocket. So Hannibal's thought process was quite easy to follow. I'm going to put my weaker troops, the troops I don't trust, in the front ranks. Therefore, when they're getting plowed on by the Romans, one, if they get killed off, eh, I don't really care. And two, they've got nowhere to retreat to, because if they turn their backs on the Roman army, they're facing my grizzled veterans so they can't really do anything however the effect was on this day that when the roman army started plowing into the front ranks it just pushed all of hannibal's ranks back and they were like backpedaling into the veterans and veterans then are pushing forward so the army's condensing like a pancake where have we heard this story before where have we heard of this being smashed in concept before oh yeah the battle of Cannae. Thankfully, though, right, there's no cavalry behind the ranks to smash them in and completely envelop them, right? Wrong. After a few minutes, and initially, all the different tactics, you know, your Balearic slingers, your long swordsmen, your archers, your whatever, all these international troops, because it's so different, they're actually doing okay against the Roman army, but the Roman army's steadfast and slowly moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, whereas the Carthaginian army's just a miasmic mess, and like I said, pancaking, uh, and then... And then the Roman cavalry finishes off the Carthaginian cavalry and their horses come back in behind the Carthaginian ranks and now they've got them surrounded. It's the same situation as Canaan. Not quite as bad, the numbers aren't going to be quite as astounding. But once the Roman cavalry comes back in and has them surrounded, it's, it's over. Hannibal himself is able to escape, but the Battle of Zama is a decided victory for Scipio Africanus. Soon after... Carthage agrees to essentially a full surrender. Scipio gets the surname, I guess you would call it, 
of Africanus so that he can forever be remembered as Scipio, the one that did so valiantly in Africa, absolutely eclipsing Scipio the Elder, his father's legacy. And he goes back to Rome and has a triumph. And the Romans can sigh with relief and know they are now the big boy in the world. They are the ultimate force to be reckoned with. Meanwhile, Carthage is just lucky to be alive. As for Hannibal, he goes back and he actually is elected kind of to the Carthaginian oligarchy. And apparently he did a lot of good reforms civically in Carthage. But Rome just can't stand for that. Rome's punishment, Rome's peace agreement with Carthage is maybe something akin to like the Treaty of Versailles on Germany. Really, really harsh, essentially saying, Carthage, you can never have an army again, and anytime you go into battle against anyone, we have to pre-approve it. And even though it wasn't part of the initial peace deal, Rome despises the idea that their greatest enemy, Hannibal Barca, and almost rising through the ranks like a dictator of Carthage. So after seven years, Rome knocks on Carthage's door again and says, Look, you give us Hannibal, or you're asking for Punic War number three. Hannibal, rather than having Carthage defend him or give him up, exiles himself, runs away. And the next decade or so, decade and a half, of Hannibal's life is really interesting in that he starts going and joining up with other armies and other kingdoms. He joins Antiochus III down in Syria, the guy that, you know, walks into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem's temple, and, and he fights with him. He goes to another kingdom, fights with another guy, and he's just a man on the run the rest of his life and he's hunted down and there's constantly you know a price tag for his head and he never knows who to trust meanwhile our friend Scipio Africanus has also had the tables turned on him the Roman Senate is fickle and bloodthirsty and greedy and envious and jealous and there are those in the Senate who despise Scipio Africanus for being so beloved and Scipio, for all extensive purposes, is also ostracized. And it's said that before he left Rome, Scipio kept pleading for Rome to let go of Hannibal, just to not worry about him. There was that Professor X and Magneto situation where the other one didn't want the other guy to actually die, and he admired him. He knew how precious a mind his adversary actually was. And in peacetime, he could admire it all the more. But Scipio and Hannibal die in the same year. We don't know how Scipio died. It could have been suicide, for it's said that his tombstone is written, Ungrateful fatherland, you'll not even have my bones. So somewhere in those years after the Battle of Zama, somewhere after Scipio won his great heavyweight bout with Hannibal, he began to hate and despise the very people he fought for. While Hannibal killed himself, while his home was being ransacked and he was going to be brought back into Roman custody. Apparently, his whole life, he had a ring that opened up and had poison inside of it. So that at any moment, if Hannibal actually got caught into Roman hands, he could kill himself. Take himself out of the equation. So that he could live up to his oath to his father. To his eternal sacrifice. That he would forever fight the Romans and he would never be captured by them. So who won the heavyweight bout between Hannibal Barca and Scipio Africanus? I'd say, some way, somehow, the Roman Empire TKO'd both fighters. Because they both lose. Lady Fortune turned her back on both champions. If you want to read more in-depthly about this story, uh, I highly recommend the book that I got a lot of this content from, called Hannibal's Last Battle, Zama and the Fall of Carthage by Brian Todd Carey. 
Thank you for listening this week. Thank you for letting me be your guest host. My name is Dante Stack. I produce two weekly podcasts, if you're interested. You can find them on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else you can find podcasts. One is called Solve the World. That's a fictional week-by-week story with sound effects and music. And I'm trying to do an adventure story that blends mythology with philosophy and trying to play with where those two things can merge And it's a slow burn story. It takes a while for it to get going, but hopefully it's something really good. That's called Solve the World. The other one's called 365 Honest Questions. If you've ever heard of the Bible Answer Man, I'm trying to be the opposite of that. I'm the Bible Question Man. Every episode of 365 Honest Questions takes a look at a specific passage or idea from the Bible and explores it without actually trying to give an answer from the pulpit. It's a wide open form. I try to make it appeal to both atheists and, you know, believing Christians. So I'd appreciate it if you check out my podcasts. I'd like to thank very much John Hagedorn for giving me the opportunity to host this episode for you. Once again, you can find my podcasts on iTunes, Solve the World, and 365 Honest Questions. Or you can find me and my podcasts at my website, DanteStack.com. D-A-N-T-E-S-T-A-C-K.com. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this special guest-hosted episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Join us at Facebook at facebook.com slash 1001heroes or at our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 